God's grace. What a great theme. I think I'll change my sermon. No, what I need to do is think about grace in the sermon. Where is it? We're in Acts chapter 27. Grab a Bible this morning. Acts 27, and we're going to go through to 28.15. And in 28.15 or 14, one of those, it says, And so we came to Rome. You may have been wondering why all these things that were happening to Paul, he's almost ripped, ripped apart by the crowd, the soldiers having to lift him up over the people just to get him to safety, the trials that he had before Felix, Festif, and Agrippa. What's all going on? God is going to get this man to Rome. Angels have said it. Paul has had the seed sown in his heart, this desire to go to Rome, but he never dreamed in his wildest dreams that he would go as a prisoner. Could we say it's all of the grace of God? Yes, we could. As we get into this sermon, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your holy word, for the life of the Apostle Paul, and the fact that you have a plan and a purpose and a destiny for all of us. Help us to fulfill our destiny as Paul did his. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As we go to Acts 27, we see Paul is going on a cruise. Any of you ever been on a cruise, on a Mediterranean cruise? Ah, uh, that's one of the things I've never done, and I would love to do that. So pass the hat around. On cruises, you don't have to carry your baggage around from place to place. They usually have excellent food. They have entertainment, lots of things to keep you busy, right? I think I'd like a cruise in the Mediterranean, and I know for sure that I would like to visit Italy. I've been to Rome and other places in Italy, and it's one neat country well worth a visit. And God had put the desire in Paul's heart to go to Rome and preach the gospel in the capital city of the then known world. Rome was like a magnet, just drawing people to it. But Paul never dreamed that he would go to Rome as a prisoner. So imagine the aged not because he's old, but he's aged because he's worked so hard for Christ. And he's been whipped, and today we're going to see him shipwrecked and gone through all sorts of tough times, and he's prematurely aged. He has health issues, and the poor man is in chains. That's the situation. So in verse 27 it says, when it was decided that we, who's the we? Did you know you could have a really good Bible study on two letters, we? Hmm? I once had a sermon with three letters called but, B-U-T. Who's the we? Well, it's certainly Luke, the writer of this letter, and it's a man called Aristarchus. 
Who's Aristarchus? Aristarchus is a convert of Paul who really appreciated his pastor. Do we have anyone here this morning that really appreciates their pastor? All right, just clearing the deck here. So Aristarchus, something moved in this man's heart to minister to this aged apostle. And Paul was really encouraged that people like Luke and Aristarchus, the church members, would do their best to minimize his suffering. So the text says it was decided we should sail for Italy. Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Andramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Ah, we actually have a map. Thank you, Karen, for putting that up. So they're, they're leaving Caesarea, where Paul is in a prisoner. They're on a ship heading for Italy. There's different ways that they can get to Italy, and it looks like Julius is going to choose a more direct way of getting there, which is going to be a big, big mistake. It says there that Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, we actually studied a little bit about Thessalonica this morning, um, was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. So everything's starting well on this sailing ship, on this cruise that Paul is going on. However, soon the wind is against them. They have to maybe alter their course. Difficulties come along the way. It says in verse 8, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens. Much time had been lost. Sailing had become dangerous by now. It was after the fast, talking about the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the fast. You know, in the first century, these ships were not big cruise ships made of steel. What were they made of? Wood. It didn't take a lot to sink them. And what we're going to find here is they're not just having difficult winds. A hurricane, a typhoon, or something like a typhoon is going to come. And Paul's going to warn them. And we're going to see if anybody will listen to the preacher. We're living in a day and age when people don't want to listen to the preacher. I'm going to milk this for all I can this morning, so you might as well know. So Paul says in verse 9, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous. Is this a prophecy? Is this a prediction? What's going on? And bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Will anyone listen? Well, I'm sure that Luke and Aristarchus have pretty much got one leg over the side of the ship. They're ready to get off. They believe in Paul. This man's in tune with God. You need to listen. We need to listen. They needed to listen to what this man has to say. But verse 11 says, The centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. They're the experts. What does Paul know about sailing? 
any more than what Jesus knows about fishing. And so they ignore his advice, and since the harbor was unsuitable to winter and the majority decided that we should sail on, so I don't know if they had a vote on this, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harboring Crete facing both southwest and northwest. So here's the storm coming now. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought they'd obtain what they wanted, so good starts well. So they weighed anchor, they sailed along the shore of Crete, but before long a wind of hurricane force called a northeasterner swept down from the island. Now, have you ever watched those TV programs where you see people jumping into special trucks that are equipped to drive into storms? Have you seen those programs, any of you? Why would anyone with half a brain do something like that? But they do. You've got to admire their guts. The last place I want to be if a hurricane or a typhoon or something like, is, like that is swirling and coming before me is to drive towards it. And the last place I want to be is in the middle of the ocean in, in a first century ship facing something like that. You know, in the Bible, the sea is looked on as an enemy. Did you know that? You ever studied that symbolism? Is that why it says in Revelation there is no more sea? I don't know. And what I do look for in these stories, especially when I see, having been through the book of Acts, almost finished the book of Acts, and seen how careful Luke has been. Sometimes he can take events that have covered years and give you just a brief sentence on them. Here, it's a whole chapter. A lot of material why not just sum it up and said Paul had difficulty at sea? But he doesn't. He really, really spells it out. So then I have to ask myself, why? Isn't the why question the most important? Those that were in my class this morning, didn't we talk about that? Why? What's really going on here? And what I think what's, what's going on here is a great controversy, a great conflict between good and evil, between God and Satan. It's being carried out here in the life of Paul. And these men on this ship, whether they know it or not, they're part of this conflict. In fact, everybody on planet Earth is part of the great controversy conflict. Don't you think so? Whether we know it or not, that's the reality. And we've already seen in the book of Acts, over and over again, people trying to hurt Paul. And yet, when they try him, the accusations come in, usually the conclusion is, and always the conclusion is, this, this man hasn't done anything worthy of death. We really should let him go, but we want to appease the Jews or appease somebody. He's appealed to Caesar, to Caesar he will go. Well, we've already said Paul wants to go to Rome, but not this way. Not shackled to a Roman soldier when the ship is about to go down. The situation is so bad, they've thrown over so many objects, so much goods. It says in verse 20, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Gave up all hope. 
You know, we live in a hopeless society. We live in a society that's focused on many things except the most important thing. And there are men and women, boys and girls, in this room today who know enough of the gospel, enough of the good news of Jesus Christ, that we can bring hope to people. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, stand outside Safeway, which is a two-minute walk from here, and look at the people, look into their faces. Do you see hope? Do you see light shining in their faces? Do these people hop, skip into Safeway because they know they're covered with the blood of the Lamb? Not at all. And who's going to bring them hope? It's not going to be Paul, unless they read his writings. Little chance of that. It's you and it's me that God has selected, given the responsibility of bringing hope to the hopeless. Have you ever thought of Paul as the great encourager? You know, Paul is, is so misunderstood, even by the Christian community. He's down on women. Is he? You might be surprised if you study that subject, Paul and women. It's an interesting subject. Well, here he is, the great encourager. After the men had gone a long time without food, we're talking about a long time now, weeks, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice. So I don't know if that's rubbing salt a little bit into the wound here, but he's letting them know who's in tune with God and who's not. Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete, and then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. There's the great encourager right there. Because not one of you will be lost. What's he talking about? He's not talking about eternal salvation, is he? No, he's talking about not drowning in the sea. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me. You see, with this balding bandy, what does bandy mean, Pastor? Bow-legged. Those of you that were here last week. Man with this eye affliction that probably caused him to squint a lot. Did I say he was balding? Did I say he was short? Did I say he was the apple of God's eye? Because he is. All heaven would empty itself to minister to this one man. And so we see God sending his angels, or an angel, standing beside him to encourage him to keep Paul focused and on track. And here's what the angel said, do not be afraid, verse 24. Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar. How many times have we heard words like that in the book of Acts? Paul says, I must visit Rome. In 23.11, it says you will also testify in Rome. In chapter 25, to Caesar you will go. In chapter 27, you must stand trial before Caesar. And then today in 28.14, and so we came to Rome. So here's the angel repeating this, reminding him it's going to happen. 
God has a plan, a purpose, and a destiny for Paul, and nothing that man or the powers of hell can throw at Paul is going to stop that plan of God. Is that how you understand the plan of salvation in Scripture? Now, I know we're not talking about the plan of salvation specifically in these verses. We're talking about the sovereignty of God, though. We're talking about God choosing, selecting, guarding over, protecting, having purpose and plans and destiny for these individuals, not just for Paul. Yes, it's focusing on Paul, obviously, but for Luke and for Aaron darkest, and for these sailors and these soldiers, if they will just buy in and listen to the preacher, listen to the good news of the gospel. And I think they're going to start listening to something here, because the situation is so dire. So he's telling them what the angel said, do not be afraid, you must stand before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Isn't that an interesting way of putting it? So that indicates to me that Paul has been praying for the lives of these heathen that are on the ship with him. Maybe the one he's shackled to. I wonder what his name was. Remember also that if any prisoner escaped, the life of that soldier would be forfeited. Anyway, good news, it seems to me, from the angel here. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, imagine being buffeted around, starving, wet, 24 hours for 14 nights, 14 day and nights, driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. Good news or bad news? If you're approaching land, well, there's a way of of, uh, changing your situation. But what if you don't hit land the right way? What if the ship goes down? What if they all drowned? So they make soundings. They feared, it says in verse 29, that to be dashed against the rocks. They dropped four anchors and the stern and prayed that daylight would come. And in an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors of the lifeboat, you see, the sailors understand about sailing. They know they need to get into that lifeboat. So they pretended to lower some anchors from the bow. They did it deceptively, and Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men, men stay with the ship, you, Roman soldier, cannot be saved. And so the soldiers cut the rope. So now they're listening to the preacher. Huh? That's a smart thing to do. So they cut the ropes that held the lifeboat, and they let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. People are listening to Paul now. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense. You've gone without food, and you haven't eaten anything. Anybody not eaten anything for 14 days? Man, I'm getting hungry just talking about it. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair 
of your head. And when I hear words like that from a balding preacher, I remember what Jesus said. Don't worry, little flock. The very hairs of your head are counted by God, which is just a graphic way of telling us how much God loves us and will want to protect us, and we're in His care. We're in the palm of God's hands, folks. Paul's in the Father's hand. Paul's in the Son's hand. Nothing shall pluck him out of those divine hands. So after he said this, verse 35, he took some bread, he gave thanks to God in front of them all. Sounds like a little communion service there, but I'm sure it wasn't. And then he broke it and began to eat. I've said to you on other occasions, there's many, many parallels in the life of Paul to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. There were 20, 276 of us on board, so I doubt if there's 100 people here this morning. So triple the amount of people here this morning, and you're going to get pretty close to 276 people. When they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. Well, here they carry on in the next few verses, and eventually in verse 41, the ship strikes a sandbar. It runs into the ground. It's stuck fast. It can't move, and the surf is starting to break it up. The soldiers plan to do what? Kill the prisoners. For the reason I just told you, their lives would be forfeited if any escape. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life. You can see how Rome is helping the church. Rome we think of as the great enemy in Scripture, and in many ways it is. But here is a way that it's not. The Jews were intent on destroying Paul's life. The Romans seem to be preserving it, at least for the moment. So he wanted to spare Paul's life, and he kept them from carrying out their plan of execution. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached in safety. Is anyone that can't swim? It's okay to have fun in church, isn't it? Anyone can't swim? Then you are dependent on the planks. Whatever's floating around. Even mercy is there because there was enough planks to get everyone to shore. How many lives were lost? Not a one. You know that God, God is active when not a one of them is lost. It says there in the end of verse 27, verse 44, chapter 27, the rest of us were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship, and in this way, everyone. So I don't know if that means that Luke couldn't swim. Maybe it does mean that. The rest were to get there, maybe not. Everyone reached land in safety. So they land on the island of what? Anyone been to Malta? Strong Catholic country nowadays. Probably a very nice place to visit. I've never been there. Would like to go there. And as Paul is still a prisoner, he's still shackled, a fire is, is lit. We need to get, they're all soaked from ear to ear. 
They need to get dried off. The fire's being lit, and what jumps out of the fire? Paul. Now, you would think that the Jewish crowd trying to tear into pieces, you would think that hurricanes and shipwrecks would be enough. Back off, Satan. Give the guy a break. But no, a snake, a serpent, a viper jumps out. And I don't want to be allegorical here, but you know there was a snake that Satan spoke through in the Garden of Eden. Kind of seems to me a little bit more than coincidence that the snake is mentioned here, but it is a real snake, and it probably has poison, and it probably stuck its fangs in Paul. And the Maltese Islanders, their jaws dropped when they saw the snake hanging on to Paul. And they thought, he really must be a bad prisoner, a really dangerous prisoner, because if you were bad, then bad things happened to you. If you were good, good things happened to you, right? Not quite. Doesn't quite work out that way. But that's the way a lot of people think, even today. And when they saw that he didn't fall down dead, they said, he's a god. See how fickle the crowd is? How quickly they can change in the way that they react to the preacher? And yet, despite the crisis, the discomfort, the fact of being a prisoner, Paul has a healing ministry. What a powerful message. That in the middle of our crisis, anybody got any crisis here this morning? Any troubles and tribulations in your life? Can you see God working in that situation? And can you see opportunities for service? Or are you so focused on self and your problems that you're pretty oblivious to any opportunities to minister to other people? It says here that Paul went into sea a man that was really sick, prayed with him, placed his hands on him in verse 8, and healed him. God, of course, healed him through Paul. And when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. A moment ago, I was just telling you, there's many parallels between Paul and Jesus. Here's another one. They're all over the place. If you can see them, this man is living the Jesus life. Is he sinless? No. Is he perfect? certainly not in the dictionary definition of the term. Is he mature? Yes, he is. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's modeling the Jesus life. And for whatever reasons, God gave him this healing ministry. Many, many people on the island were cured. I don't know what the health services were like in those days, but they probably weren't as good as what we have today says, they honored us in many ways, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. That's grace. Grace all over the place here. And then it says in verse 14, and so we came finally to Rome. And everyone breathes a big sigh of relief. Boy, what a journey. He finally got there. And when he arrived there, 
in verse 14, it says they found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. Now remember that Paul has written a letter to the church in Rome. They probably have that letter from him. So now they can pick his brains about Romans 7. Hey, Paul, what did you mean in that letter? You said this. I don't really understand it. They're thrilled. They're excited. Of course, they don't want him to come as a prisoner. They never expected that any more than Paul did. But whichever way they can get him there, they're happy. And so it says the brothers, verse 15, had heard that we were coming. They traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. This great encourager needs to be encouraged himself. He was encouraged through Luke and Aristarchus. He was encouraged that an angel had appeared to him. But he was a human being after all. And he had lots of room for discouragement. And when you're fired up to preach the gospel, it's pretty hard to be a prisoner for how long? Does anyone know how long Paul was a prisoner? Three years, anyone? Four years? Five years? If you had to vote, what would you think? Over five years, a prisoner. Either house arrest or some other form of arrest. That's pretty hard when you're fired up to preach the gospel. And yet, despite all the restrictions on you, Almighty God can use that situation to powerfully advance his cause. Because God's ways are not man's ways. So anyway, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. What I think we need to get, the minimum that we need to get from Acts chapter 27, is the fact of God's planned purpose and destiny for every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ, not just for Paul. We see it graphically illustrated in the life of Paul, but it's true for all of us. Is it just Paul that's in the palm of God's hands? No. It's anyone, any ungodly person who believes in Jesus Christ, anyone that's an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, the worst sinner in this room today can be in the palm of Christ's hand in a moment, simply by trusting and believing in the sacrifice for your sins and for my sins on Calvary. That's the why of Christianity. Jesus knew that we were all heading for hell. And so he took hell on his own shoulders on Golgotha, on the tree, so that you and I do not have to face negative hell-fire judgment from God. Isn't that good news? Do we understand that? Do we understand that when we see the people around us? Do we have a burden for the 200 people on, on board there? Are we play, praying for our neighbors and for our workmates and for our school friends? And is God working in our lives to fulfill his plans and his purposes and his destiny. This is a very exciting time to live on planet Earth. Yes, it's scary. You might feel that you're in the 
shipwreck. And you might feel that the ship is going to go down. The church is sometimes likened to a ship that seems to sink. Does the church, the apple of God's eye, sink? No. It goes on in its weakness from strength to strength, from glory to glory. The best days for the gospel have yet to be seen. There will be Pentecost all over planet Earth. There will be revival and reformation all over the place. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And my purpose and God's purpose for you and for me is to be part and parcel of that great movement. We don't have to get hung up about talking about how special we are. The one who is special is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we simply receive the gift of Jesus and the blessings that come from Him. And let's tell people about the good news of Christianity, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much that Paul finally arrived in Rome. And we know, Lord, that if we trust in you, that we will finally arrive in the new Jerusalem, in the heavenly kingdom. And in many respects, we have arrived there already, Lord, but we're not always aware of that. We thank you for Jesus dying for us on the cross. We thank you that you can send angels to encourage us. And Lord, I know that every person here this morning, no matter what their circumstances, needs encouragement need somebody to say that they care, somebody to pray for us, somebody to put their arm around us and embrace us, someone to tell us that we're not worthless, that we are worth more than fine gold. We are precious, the very apple of God's eye. Help us to believe these truths and share them. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.